on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. When scientist Amber Chesborough goes missing along the Colombia-Venezuela border, her brother Bambi and her husband Prince struggle to find her against a backdrop of a secret war. This is the premise of Echo Free, an action thriller series that dropped on Apple Plus TV in November 2022, created by Academy Award winner Mark Bowl and starring Luke Evans and Michelle The series was scored by my very special guest today, with over 133 credits to his name. It is Golden Glow and two-time 
Emmy-nominated composer and orchestrator Christopher Young. In December 2022, for Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, I had the real pleasure of talking to Christopher Young via clean feed at his home in the United States. In the first of a two-part special interview, we talk firstly about his work on Echo Free, Young's first big episodic TV series, and then go on to talk about his illustrious career, from its humble beginnings right up to Young scoring his seminal works on the Hellraiser series of films. And in both parts of the show, you will be hearing music from the scores of Christopher Young, one of the foremost talents in film music today. Christopher Young, a very warm welcome to Talking Soundtracks. Well, I'm so thrilled to be here, Jason. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for having me part of the gang. Now, first of all, let's talk about your latest project, Echo Free. Tell us about Echo Free. Well, Echo Free is like a dream come true in so many, many ways, in that, as you probably know, so much of the work that I've done as of late has been in the scary world. Uh, Scores to thrillers, horror films, supernatural thrillers, whatever. So when that situation comes in which that's not what's being asked of me, boy, it's like manna from heaven. I was just so lucky to have had this chance to let out of the closet a part of my musical personality which had been dormant for years. This is a political thriller set in Colombia, and I had done things like this but a long time ago, and so when I got hired, I was worried, hey, have I still got it in me? I knew I did, but I I hadn't tapped into it. And the amazing thing was that the notes just sort of flew out of me like at the speed of light. Uh, it was pretty remarkable how quickly everything surfaced. And it may have been, for all I know, the fact that it had been buried uh, and just had the opportunity to be brought back to life. What initially interested you to work on the project? Uh, Well, a number of things. Again, the fact that it wasn't a scary movie. It wasn't a movie, it was television, it was a series. And I've never done a series before. I've done episodes for a series, but I've never done an entire series. I, I always thought that maybe there was this reservation in bringing me on board because as I was getting older and I hadn't done it, maybe it was too late to try to get me into shape so I could write so much music so quickly. Uh, the fact that it came, that was the great thing, that I was able to step up to the plate and deliver what they were looking for and more than what they were looking for made it a dream come true. How did you go about scoring Echo Free? Well, differently than most movies I work on in that I got together with Mark the Bowles, the producer, and we decided, I've suggested, and he encouraged me to do something different than what I normally do, which is we didn't really spot the, the show at first. This is where music's supposed to start. This is where it's supposed to end. I need this theme. I need that theme. I need this theme and that theme to reoccur this moment and and that moment. Rather, he said, listen, why don't you just go off into your laboratory here 
and come up with as much music as you possibly can that's inspired by the show. It's not written to the picture, but written about the picture. And so I was excited, thrilled. I think that concept is becoming more and more a part of the way to score films these days than it was when I first started. We know that there's a handful of composers who have done extraordinarily well and really don't write to picture. Of course, Morricone comes to mind as someone who was... I wasn't sure. I always thought that it, it was on all of his Italian movies, but I recently was corrected. It really was only with Sergio Leone that he wrote music based on his interpretation of the screenplay. Music was completed before the shooting. Johnny Greenwood is a big composer now, and I don't know exactly how he does things, but I get the feeling, I'm not sure if he starts coming up with ideas after he's read the script, but I get the feeling that he watches the movie and is inspired by it and then goes off and writes these pieces of music which are not spotted to any specific scene and they're just about the movie and then the music editor positions them in conjunction with him. With him. I, I don't know, but it brings a different perspective. You can't get that involved with the minutia of exactly what you're seeing on the screen because you're not writing it to the, what's going on on the screen. And that's kind of what happened here on Echo 3. Well, that's exactly what happened, is that I wrote what I call studies. I wrote a series of studies that were demonstrative of certain elements of the picture and then had him come over and listen to them and respond to them and give me such suggestions how to make them better. And then me working with the music editor, we then started putting them to the picture after the fact. And it, it just did something different to the approach than had I actually written it. We'd spotted the movie in and we'd said, music starts here and ends there. And we want you to catch this and catch that. The score would have turned out entirely differently.
How long did it take you to score Echo Free? I was called in to replace a score. So I didn't have as long as I guess I normally would have. But I think probably I was connected to it for a couple of months. It could have been longer, probably not any shorter. Again, this whole process was so different. I would write volumes of musical ideas that I would develop on their own accord. I must have written over three hours of music easily, spread out over, like I said, a series of these studies. I remember the beginning, I, I think my first show and tell, I showed him an hour's worth of music. And then the second one probably was another hour. So in answer to your question, the simple answer is I was probably on it for a minimum of two months. But since the process of writing music was so different, by the time I'd finished doing the bulk of the writing, I'd already come up with music that was appropriate for the last of the episodes. It wasn't like I had to wait for them to show me something. I was ahead of the game, which was a nice feeling. It wasn't like they were waiting and pacing and going, when is this guy going to deliver? When is he going to deliver? I wanted to make sure he knew that I was up for the challenge and that I could be ahead of the game. What was the instrumentation of Echo Free? I know, listening to the score, I did catch there was a lot of samples in the music. How much music was live on the score? Actually, there's not a lot of synth stuff in there. It's mostly a live acoustic that are manipulated electronically, but the source of the sounds does not come from anything from the factories. It comes from the recording of instruments at my studio. And I have a massive collection of percussion instruments that I've picked up over the years because I'm an ex-percussionist. And I've, so I think a lot of these rhythmic ideas started with some combination of these percussion instruments that I had, plus some experiments done with the nylon string guitar, the classical guitar, because that is an instrument, though is not purely Colombian, nonetheless is a part of Spanish music. And then in terms of this vocal stuff, I think I sing in one of the moan in one of these cues, and my voice always appears sooner or later somehow in, in so many of these scores. And actually, Jessica, the, the director's wife, who's the actress in the show, she came in and we did a session with her singing syllables. I think it's manipulated acoustic instruments, some strange, some less strange instruments. I remember going, you know, right in the middle of things was the Renaissance Fair here in L.A. And I went to that, and I had in my mind, I remember going in previous years, and there was an ocarina stand, and they were they sold bass ocarinas. And so I said, shit, I got to go there and pick out a bass ocarina. Lo and behold, I bought a bass ocarina, which appears in the score a bit. The percussion instruments, I have these weird sort of semi-tuned marimbas here at the office that I use. A lot of toy instruments, a lot of stringed instruments that are out of tune that I never bothered to retune. 
that are strummed or plucked. I'd like to think it sounds more acoustic than synth-generated. Loops created by sampling these sounds, but the sounds themselves are born out of the office. Getting back to the very beginning, how did your interest in music start? You know what? God knows that, or something external knows why and started. And as far as I can tell, it started right shortly after I was born. I can't remember a day, uh, Jason, where music hasn't been in my head. Now, I can't remember specific things that happened to me when I was a baby. I certainly don't have that kind of recall that some people that I know do. They can remember specific events that happened to them when they were babies. That I can't do. But all I can tell you is I always have music in my head. I always have. And weirdly, of course, when I was a kid, as is often the case when you've got something going on all the time in your head, I thought everybody had music going on in their heads all the time. And so when my parents seemed frustrated the fact that I was always daydreaming and humming and 
tapping things. I couldn't understand that at first because I thought, wait a second, isn't it going out in their head too? Don't they hear all this stuff happening? But apparently not. And so it was there at the beginning. I only wish I could say that I was some sort of wonderkin or poor child prodigy, but this is not the case. I started off drumming. Uh, I don't know why that happened because there's absolutely no link in my family's history to anything having to do with music, really, let alone drumming. But lo and behold, I wanted, at a very young age, nothing more than to be able to sit behind a drum set. Not classical, but more the pop thing. Because really, back in those days, in the 60s, the only way you had to involve yourself in music was through the radio. That was your primary source of education, musical education, because the grammar school I went to didn't have any classes in music. And so it was what was on the radio, and the radio stations on the East Coast were so far and few between that the repertoire of stuff that was available was very limited. But it was all songs, all vocal songs. On one end, there was a station called WNEW. The DJ on that show that my mom liked so much, his name was William B. Williams. And they used to play the American Songbook, the jazz vocalists, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., this kind of stuff. Ella Fitzgerald. That's what they played on her station. There, of course, and then there was like two or three other stations and the one that I listened to was WABC with Cousin Brucie was the DJ. Cousin Brucie was the guy that introduced me and everyone else to rock and roll. So that was what moved me. I was totally immersed in popular songs, and I had them in my head all the time. I traveled around with that soundtrack provided by the radio in my head. And the British Invasion... That was where it was at. There's the three B's. I call it the three B's of rock and roll or pop music. There's the three B's of classical music, as you know, Bach, Brahms, and Beethoven. Uh, but the three B's of rock, I would say, are the Beatles, the Birds, and the Beach Boys. They're the three that I think really sort of, when I was young, helped form my understanding of music. So... And as your question, long-winded, music was always there in me. I don't know when it started, why it started, but it was just there. My primary source of being fed music was AM radio. This is pre-FM, it was all AM. And what you heard, my, there was only two types of music. They didn't have a classical music station, or if they did, I wasn't aware of it. So there was no orchestra music. The only orchestra I ever heard on the radio was the string sections that would back Frank Sinatra in his songs or what might appear in a pop song. So that's kind of it. My discovery of orchestral music didn't happen till later on, much later on, really. And of course, that changed everything. And so from this, you decided to become a film composer. When did you decide you wanted to start scoring films? Uh... 
I went to Berkeley School of Music for a summer session and studied with Alan Dawson. He replaced Joe Morella in Dave Brubeck's band. And he was a hero of mine. I loved his playing. I couldn't believe I was going to get to study with him. I was hoping it was going to fly, that I was going to impress him. But unfortunately, I did not impress him enough. So he kind of gave me the, the feeling that it was time to put my sticks in the closet. I was crushed. I mean, absolutely crushed in tears, wondering what is going to happen. I can't abandon music. I don't know of anything else to do, really. I've tried other things. My dad was a lawyer. My dad's dad was a lawyer. My dad's dad's dad was a lawyer. So it was all in the family, and I had two brothers, and he was dumbfounded that I was sort of this spaced-out, eccentric nut of a kid. And so... I couldn't imagine myself doing anything but music. Lo and behold, I was very fortunate in it in my head. I started coming up with ideas that were pitch-oriented, not just rhythmically oriented, which is what drummers do. Drummers are always inventing patterns or whatever and playing with them, always tuning into the tick-tock of anything that they have any contact with in the real world and then trying to modify it in their heads. So pitches started coming into my head, and I got first into arranging for voices. I wrote for choirs and a cappella, sort of jazz vocal groups, and then started writing for instruments or arranging for instruments, which turned into writing for instruments. And film music and my love for that came pretty quickly after I got into making the commitment of wanting to write. And how did that happen? I walked into a record store. This is back in the days, I think, when I was into prog rock and saw this album in the corner of the record store in the musical theater and soundtrack section. And it had a really cool cover on it. And it was called The Fantasy Film World of Bernard Herrmann. I know you know this record. Was released. Oh, I think I have that, yes. Yes, it was released on Phase 4 Records, which was a subdivision of Decca Records, I think. And I got this thing because I thought it was, wow, wow, what a cool cover. And oh my God, this is music written about science fiction books that I had been reading at the time. Jury's Center of the Earth, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Fahrenheit 451. These are books that I was interested in at that juncture in my life. A lot of American kids like gobbled up science fiction when they were in their early teens, and I was one of them. So, lo and behold, I bought this record back, these suites from these fantasy films, sci-fi films he'd worked on, and I dropped the needle on the opening track, which was... The sunrise music, I think, from Jury's Center of the Earth. And it immediately caught me.
part of me wishes I could travel back in time to that moment in which I put the needle on that record because that blew my mind. It changed everything. The music I've been writing up to that moment had dabbled in this world of mystery, and I was trying to discover who I was as a writer, but there was always this element of mystery and trying to capture the unknown in music. And that's what I loved about Herman's stuff. There's something so in, inevitably mysterious about it. And the way he used instruments and the colors he created, I just found so remarkable. The sound alone altered my concept of music. Much in the same way when I heard the Beatles for the first time, albeit when I was really, really young, on the Ed Sullivan show on television. The earth moved a little bit after they performed. I think it tipped on its axis just a tiny bit. The following morning, things had changed in America, at least for kids my age, or my, older than me, but roughly my age. I can't quite describe the day after hearing the Beatles for the first time on Ed Sullivan, but I had the exact same experience of hearing Herman's music for the first time after dropping the needle on that record. I knew in five seconds of hearing the opening music, there was something extraordinarily special here that was going to change my life. How did you get your first film assignment? The first film assignments came again. I couldn't have been more lucky. I didn't know anybody in L.A. I didn't know anything about anybody, anything. I knew nothing about nothing. Really, I came out here just because I'd fallen madly in love with film music, and I was young enough where no words of wisdom about why the probability of this happening was so slim ever could stop me from coming out here. My parents were very skeptical about it. Everyone around me thought I was a nutter, because I'd never written any film music. I'd written some acoustic music, but by the time I decided to move out here, there was nothing that I had written thus far that gave any indication that I was going to be a film composer. I just had a love for it. So I applied to UCLA and USC. They both turned me down. I wanted to go to school. I knew I needed to go back to school to really learn how to write for instruments. Back in those days, there was no home studio. You couldn't fake it with synth samples. Even if you were scoring a student film, you had to find a way to get them in a room, get live musicians in a room, because that was the only way you could do it. So I, fortunately, after getting turned down by UCLA and USC, after spending a year at a school in Texas called North Texas State University, that's what it was called then. I think it's just called North Texas University or right now. But that was the best year I ever had, booking myself, walking myself away, studying orchestral scores, having some phenomenal teachers, getting my first experiments, trying to work in the electronic world and falling in love with that. I reapplied to UCLA and USC. UCLA accepted me the second go-round. So I, I moved out here not knowing anybody, and I studied with David Raxon, who wrote the music to Laura Forever Amber and The Bad and the Beautiful, among 95 other movies and lots of television. And that was an eye-opening experience. 
I was a nervous wreck around him most of the time. But the way my career really started happening was by me spending a lot of time over at Nelmitz, which was the film department building at UCLA, and getting to know the students there. I did lots of student movies, and it turns out one of the guys there had gotten together enough money to turn his senior thesis into a feature. And so I hustled him to try to get the gig because I knew he didn't know anything about film music, really, and he wasn't going to look for someone off campus because it was all done with on-campus students. He wanted to use everybody, all of his talent, had to come from on campus. And I guess I was the one who hustled him the most, and some of the guys that he'd hired, again, we all did it for free, I had scored their movies, so they recommended me. So the very first movie I did was a low-budget horror film, and actually, it went through a number of titles, but it did actually get released under the title The Dawn That Dripped Blood. But it went through a series of different titles. It's, I think it was first called Pranks, and then it was called Death Dorm, and then finally The Dorm That Dripped Blood. number of people who were connected to that that ended up moving on and doing pretty well. Matthew Mungle, who did the special effect makeup stuff, he ended up winning the Academy Award for Bram Stoker's Dracula. The actress Daphne Zuniga, that was her first feature, and she did a lot of films after that, and I guess in the television world, her probably biggest show was Melrose Place. Scott Alexander, who actually wasn't involved in that movie, but the, the follow-up movie with the same group of people, which was called The Power, he was like a runner, assistant editor. He ended up getting into writing and wrote the screenplays that pictures like People vs. Larry Flint, Bud Wood, Big Eyes, yeah, about six or seven movies, screenplays. So it was a great kickoff. That's how it happened. I did a student movie, which was released. They did a second movie called The Power. The Power had more money. I put the money that I had won from the Henry Mancini Award into that score, and that movie got played in the theater in Westwood, which is where UCLA is. I invited department heads from of the low-budget film companies and agents. And one of the guys from Roger Corman's company 
New Horizons came and listened and liked what he heard, and that sort of opened up the door for me doing uh, films for real companies, albeit low-budget companies, and that became my thing. New World Pictures followed shortly after New Horizons, and Tony Randall was the head of post-production. He became a fan. became like the in-house guy at New World Pictures. The firm that made all the difference in the world was a film called Hell Razor, and that changed the outcome of my career quite quickly. Yes, Hellraiser. It was, I think, the very first film score I've ever heard from you. And since then, I've been a fan of your work ever since. I played a suite from the 30th anniversary edition of the score when it came out in 2017 on my archive show, and I still rate it as one of my all-time favourite film scores. Particularly the Q Resurrection, which was, incidentally, the very first piece of music I heard composed by you. Hellraiser changed my life for sure little did i know that it was going to change my life to the extent that it has chances are they'll etch on my tombstone you remember the guy that did the score to hellraiser now that dates back 30 years ago and i certainly have done a lot of films since then which i'd like to think are just as good if not better it just so happens that that movie is the one that everyone gravitates towards it's become of all the films i've worked on the most popular and kind of in the world of film music that's what it's all about is it's more about the picture being loved first and foremost and then by the score following in its footsteps and the case of hellraiser when i was hired to do that i just finished doing nightmare 2 i think or that had happened just a little bit beforehand. And Clyde was very adamant about the fact that he did not want the score to be just scary music. The brother Hellraiser was a sick romantic movie about a woman who falls in love with the brother of her husband who's abusive, but nonetheless wants him so badly that she'd do anything to bring him back to life. Apparently, that opened up something in me that 
nothing up to that day had opened up. If I was to go back and rewrite that score, or try to rewrite that score today, my solutions to that movie would be entirely different, I'm sure. When you're working on something, when you're creating something at any given moment, you are only able to operate based on both the extent of your knowledge of that subject being composing music and at the same time the limitations. So the choices I made were based on where I was at at that moment. The cue that you mentioned was your favorite, was the resurrection of Frank. Again, I scored that. Originally, I think I scored it like I would have scored any scene like that. Normally, my first reaction would be, make it scary. You know, it's a pretty gross-looking scene, make it scary. So I wrote scary music. Clive tells the story differently than I do. I guess that didn't work, or maybe I didn't write scary music for that. But the thing that stands out about that cue that you're probably drawn to is the fact that it's a waltz. Clive says I came up with the idea for the waltz. I thought he was the one who came up with the idea for the waltz. But as he tells it later, he said that definitely I came up with the idea because he said he wanted something that was bombastically gothic and descriptive of this strange but profoundly gorgeous moment in which this Frank is brought back to life. And he just didn't want to scare people. He wanted to, I guess, lift people in a way that scary music to itself wouldn't do. So, lo and behold, I think what makes that cue special is the fact that it's a big gothic minor waltz.
that's most everyone's favorite cue. When they talk about that film score, they talk about that cue. My favorite, however, is the cue in which Julia has a flashback and remembers meeting Frank for the first time and then subsequently making love to him. The cue starts off with a restatement of the main title theme. I've often felt that in genre movies where there's this sense of mystery, the best thing to do is to write music that asks a question at the beginning of the film, engages the audience in their wondering, what is this journey I'm about to take? What is this all about? Where is it going? And at the moment in which some meaning is brought forth that sort of alludes or is the answer to that question, that's the perfect time to restate the theme. So, we are introduced to the Frank for the first time in a flashback that she has. So, that's the first time we hear that theme again in the score. It then progresses as she walks into the room, the empty room in which she has memories of meeting and making love to him for the first time. That's where the cue changes and becomes my favorite thing that I wrote for the movie. We cut between them making love and her husband walking up the stairs carrying a mattress with his assistants. Things build as the lovemaking intensifies, as does the walk up the stairs. They climax as he cuts his hand on a nail protruding from the wall at the top of the stairs. It's interesting that Clive made that connection. I thought it was pretty damn good. What I did do in the queue was not change the music from their music to his music, or music to his music, because I thought the audience would be with the couple the entire time and thinking about them. So the music keeps playing through all of that with him walking up the stairs, but does climax at a moment in which they climax and he cuts his hand, and then it winds down. I remember Clive saying to me before I scored that, he said, listen, Chris, let's not forget this is a sick romantic movie, and this is the scene we've got to convince the audience that her love for him is so deep, so dark, but so deep and so twisted that she would be willing to go out and do absolutely anything for him despite the fact, you know, he's abusive. I remember those were in the days when we didn't have the money to, to project the picture. All we had was the, the orchestra on uh, the Yuri Click metronome, and it wasn't until after the music was transferred onto Mag and put against the picture that we were able to see how does it really play the scene, and is it in sync with the picture. And I remember we were in a tiny little editing room at New World Pictures. It was about the size of what these porta potties that you see at outdoor events, bigger than that, but not much bigger. We played the scene, and there was dead silence at the end of it. We all kind of were taken by it, including myself. I was surprised that I was moved by it myself. We all kind of stood up and hugged each other, and I, I think I started crying or something. I, uh, I don't know, but it was a real big emotional moment. And it was at that juncture that I kind of came to the conclusion or started to think, maybe, Chris, you really were meant to be a film composer. 
I think I shocked myself at how that cue played to that scene.
Anyway, that film did so well that it has guided pretty much everyone's concept of who I am as a composer. And I'm terrified that it's going to be etched in my tombstone that, you know, this is the guy that wrote the score to Hellraiser. I think it's a good score. I don't necessarily think it's my past score, but thank the Lord I don't because I've since written, I don't know, over a hundred scores since then. I've got to believe that there's something else in there that competes with it. It just so happens to be the best movie I've worked on or the most favored movie by the fans. And so I'm blessed that I got this movie. Little did I know, little did anyone know it was going to become a cult classic, but it has. So I thank my lucky stars I got involved in it on one hand. On the other hand, it sort of created a, a, a towering shadow that has been very hard to uh, get out from, if you know what I mean. Yes, I can understand that. I've heard that Resurrection Q in a number of settings. Oh, I remember seeing it used during a magic act, background music. Oh, really? Music, well. And it's also been used as the theme for the BBC radio series Old Harry's Game. Now, I had no, I had no idea. No, they didn't. They, I don't know. Remember, I don't own the music. I'm not the person they would go to. They'd have to go to New World Pictures. Half owner of the Hellbound music, but not the Hellraiser music. <laughs> But Hellbound is, is an equally excellent score. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, on that one, of course, I had to outdo myself or try to outdo myself. There's nothing more revealing, I think, or more terrifying for a composer than to have to do a sequel to his own work because the question that's going to be asked is, is it as good as? Well, if it's not as good as you're... Well, it, you better try to make it better than. Now, I'm not saying that score is better than, but it certainly, there was more money for it. And so it's a larger group. And my instructions on that were different. It was meant to be a celebration of horror, not a reflection of a demented love affair. So the romantic element of it kind of didn't work its way into the score like it did in the first movie.
I prefer the second one, you know, in many ways. I got to be much more experimental, I think. There's an interesting sort of carousel music at the end, so I know it's on, on the album. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. It's the scene in hell there in which she goes to the carnival. The Hall of Mirrors, I think is what I call the cue. That's right. I called the scene the Hall of Mirrors. And that was fun in that I got to write the calliope music. And that took a while to get the sample to come out and record sounds that tried to make it sound like the real deal, like some cheesy factory calliope, but as close to the real, what they call band organs. I, went, I remember going down to uh, the Santa Monica Pier and, and getting re recording the band organ that's used in the carousel there and other recordings of carousels just to get that sonority in my head. And so we tried to parallel that with my synthesis and the samples that we used. And then I laid on top of it the orchestra doing all this kooky stuff. You know, it was like layering it with things that had nothing to do with what we were hearing with the, the calliope. And uh, that was fun. The first time I'd gotten an opportunity to do that kind of writing, particular form of sound mass. It's a layering of one or, or two or more unrelated musics on top of each other, and that's kind of what this was. Yes, Hellbound was much bigger, much more bombastic. I would say there's times in which I used to describe the music as sonic with vomit, in which the music gets to be excessively forward and pulling all stops out to participate in the picture in a really aggressive way. That's the wonderful thing about horror films is that you get to, at the right moment, be massively aggressive in the language. So, good experience. <laughs>
And with Hall of Mirrors from Christopher Young's score for the 1988 horror film Hellraiser 2 Hellbound, we've come to the end of part one of my special interview with Christopher Young for the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. I hope you have enjoyed what you have heard so far. Part two will be with you very soon. But until then, from me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>